These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast. This is the show where I find a subject I'd like to know more about and then write what I learned into a story. This is episode 219. And in this episode, I'm talking about the wonderful Ruth Gordon. Most know her from the films that she made in the late 60s and 1970s. The thing is, Ruthie had an over 50-year acting career before making it in Hollywood. She was a writer as well. Oh, and did I mention that she once asked to have both her legs broken? And they were. So let's get into it. The Amazing Ruth Gordon. As many of you might know, I'm a bit fascinated by actor-filmmaker Coleman Francis. I've been, well, researching him for years. One day I was going through old newspaper clippings and I found a small article in the Citizen's News from March 31, 1956. Coleman was acting in a play. The story read, The autobiographical story of an actress, years ago by Ruth Gordon, is the current fair at the Horseshoe Stage on Melrose Boulevard. Ruth Gordon, I asked myself, could this be the same Ruth Gordon that was in Rosemary's Baby and Harold and Maud, the feisty elderly lady with the tell-it-like-it-is attitude? Research began, and sure enough, Ruth Gordon wrote the play years ago, but I also discovered there was a lot more about this amazing woman. Oh, by the way, in the article, it says that Coleman, who played the father, does admirably in the role. Ruth, of course, was in 1968's Rosemary's Baby, and for her performance, Ruth won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. When she won the Oscar, she said, Um, I I can't tell you how encouraging a thing like this is. The first film that I was ever in was in 1915, and here we are, and it's 1969. Actually, I don't know why it took me so long, though I don't think, you know, that I'm backward. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, Bill, thank you, Bob, thank you, Roman, and thank you, Mia, and thank all of you who voted for me, and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. Yes, her first film was in 1915. That year she played in three films, all uncredited. She wouldn't do another film for 25 years, but during that quarter of a century she made a name for herself as one of the most respected actors on the stage. There's more to her, however, than just her acting. She was born in Quincy, Massachusetts as Ruth Gordon-Jones on October 30, 1896. 
Her mother was Annie Zegler Tapley and her father, Clint Jones. He was a ship captain turned factory foreman. The Jones family was not a rich family. She said later that at age four, she began to get organized and knew great things were going to happen to her. Growing up, one of her favorite pastimes was writing Hollywood stars to get their autographs. After seeing an actress, Hazel Dawn, in a stage production of The Pink Lady, Ruth wrote and received a personal reply. It was then she decided to become an actress, much to her parents' disappointment. Her father hoped she would be a physical education teacher. After appearing in her one and only amateur play, in which she said was dreadful, her mother told her, How can you be an actress? In fact, many in her New England family equated being an actress to being a prostitute. Ruth said, My Aunt Ada told Mama for Ruth to go to be an actress is like being a harlot. But Ruth fought them all and wore them down, determined to make her dreams come true. So she traveled to New York, but after months of trying and failing to get work, her parents talked her into enrolling in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I began working when I was 19. I come from hardworking people and never occurred to me not to work. My father was a foreman of a food factory. He got $37 a week. Out of that, he supported me, supported my mother, sent me to school, gave me $400 to be taught drama so I could go on the stage. But at the school, after the first year, Ruth was called into the office of the school's president, and he told her, We feel like you are not suited to acting. You show no promise. She was refused a second term and sent home. Of course, this made Gordon more determined than ever to succeed. She begged her parents to let her go to New York to see if she could make it as an actress. The family had no money to give the 19-year-old, especially after her mother, who was the real breadwinner in the family at the time, suffered a stroke. She left home on October 1, 1915, and her father gave her $50 and a one-way ticket to New York. She would say later in life, I always wanted to be rich and famous. That's maybe an unworthy ambition, but that doesn't mean you've got to be meretricious. After all, there's been a lot of quality. I've played Ibsen, Shaw, and Chekhov. But before Chekhov, she had to find work. She found things very difficult in New York City. For months, she tried to break into theater with no success. The only work she found was in Fort Lee, New Jersey, playing bit parts in a few silent films for $5 a day. Finally, she got a break. She was cast as Nibs in Peter Pan on Broadway, opposite Maude Adams. From what I've read, Ruth still had no acting ability, but the part suited her as she had very little dialogue. The New York Times reported, Miss Gordon is ever so gay as Nibs. That review would be framed and always proudly displayed in her home. This led to a play called Fair and Warmer. The play had been a success on Broadway, and Ruth was cast in the touring company that played all over the Midwest. The whole time Ruth was in the play, she was in danger of being fired. The only thing that kept her employed was that the producers couldn't find anyone else to take the part. Once that was over and she was back in New York, she quickly was running out of money. That's when she met a man who would change her life, Gregory Kelly. Gregory was an established Broadway star, and it was through him she got the part in the play 17, in which she played Lola Pratt. Gregory began working with her, teaching her how to be an actress, how to memorize lines and such. 
It didn't start off good. Haywood Braun of the New York Tribune wrote, Anyone who looks like that and acts like that must get off the stage. But Ruth kept at it. One had to create an illusion in the theater to be successful, and this Gregory Kelly taught me. In fact, he taught me everything I know. It didn't take long before the two became lovers. Ruth would say that he was adorable, just like Jack Lemmon. But this was in the early 20th century, a time when a sexual relationship out of wedlock was considered scandalous. And from what I've read, Ruth was always sexually active. When Ruth became pregnant, she knew that it could ruin both their careers, so she had an illegal, painful abortion. After that, the 22-year-old Ruth and the 27-year-old handsome star got married. A little side note here. Wikipedia says the two were married in 1921, but I don't think that can be true. I found a newspaper story from January 5, 1919, that said that Gregory was married last week to Ruth Gordon. And one from January 19, 1919, that read, I may add that Gregory Kelly is married. His new bride is Ruth Gordon. So I conclude that they were both married in late 1918. Her next big play would be Tweedles in 1923. But before that, she had to deal with a deep, dark secret. One that would keep her off the stage for months. It began when she was in Chicago. She was in a State Street department store when she said she saw... A pair of legs coming toward me in the mirror. They were so funny. I laughed, and as I got closer, they were mine. You see, she had been hiding the fact that she was bow-legged for a long time. She knew how to stand on stage, to hide her condition, but finally she decided to do something about it. In December of 1920, at Chicago's Presbyterian Hospital, she had both her legs broke and reconnected so they would be straight. I've always worried because my legs were bowed. It interfered with my acting. Whenever I tried to act, I was thinking about how to pose on the stage so that the audience would be watching my acting and not my bow legs. Doctors told her it was something she should have had done when she was a child, but at this point, they first refused to do it, saying that she already had two healthy legs. But she finally convinced them that it was necessary for her career. Her husband, Gregory, fully supported her and stayed with her the whole time, showering her with presents. Oh, it hurt. I believe the results will be worth the suffering. It was two months later, in February, when she finally got the two-leg casts taken off, though she still had to spend a few more weeks in a wheelchair. But eventually she was back on her feet. By September, she was back on stage in a play called Bristol Glass. Over the next few years, she would be on the stage, sometimes with her husband, sometimes without. It must have been a magical time for Ruth. For the first time, she had two great legs, she was newly married to a handsome young man, and was starring in Broadway plays, always getting great reviews. In 1927, she had landed a role in the very successful play called Saturday's Children. It was during that time that she said she really blossomed as an actress. It was the first real acting I ever did, acting in the deep sense, one emotion underneath and one on the surface. Isn't that how it is in real life? At the time, her husband was starring in a play called The Butter and Egg Man. That's when tragedy happened. On February 26, 1927, Gregory Kelly had a heart attack. He stayed at Mercy Hospital until March 30th and then went to Atlantic City to rest. On April 9th, 
Ruth met him, and the two returned to New York. But then on April 27th, he collapsed and was taken to the hospital. Doctors said they expected him to recover in a week or two. How much of this was real and how much was what they told the papers? I can't say, but it seemed his condition was a lot more serious than they let on. On July 11th, Ruth was in the second act of Saturday's Children when word came that it wasn't looking good for Gregory. She left the play and quickly traveled to Harbor Sanitarium in New York. She was at his bedside when he passed away at 11.10 p.m. After the funeral a couple days later, Ruth returned to Saturday's Children. After all, the show must go on. And I'll be back with part two of our story in just a moment. Be free, cause there's a million things to be, you know that there are. And if you wanna be high, be high. If you wanna be low, be low. Cause there's a million ways to go, you know that there are. And if you wanna be me, be me. If you wanna be you, be you. Cause there's a million things to do You know that there are Now, join in You know that there are You can do what you want The opportunities are And if you find a new way You can do it today you can make it all true, and you can make it undo. You see, oh, it's easy. Oh, you only need to know. was now a widow, but her acting career continued to flourish. The reviews were almost always positive. She even found time to capitalize on her fame by appearing in ads. In August of 1927, she appeared in a newspaper ad for Blind Shoes. The headline read, Is that all it costs? asks Ruth Gordon. In 1929, Ruth was starring in the hit Jed Harris production of Serena Blandish. Jed was a married man, but he and Ruth began a romance, and soon Ruth was pregnant again. And again, she feared that knowledge of her pregnancy out of wedlock might ruin her career, but this time she decided to have the baby. She made plans to leave the country, to give birth without the public knowing. It was a secret. Nobody knew. I was going abroad. Nobody knew that, either. I was going to have the baby, and I was going to have it someplace far off. Berlin? Someplace where I didn't know anyone. Gordon and Harris never married, but provided for their son, Jones Harris. Now, I have read that Jed Harris was known as one of the meanest producers in theater. He was married three times, and each one of his exes told of his abusive nature. And although he provided for his and Ruth's son, allegedly he treated the boy like dirt. That's one part of Ruth's life I just don't get. On September 9, 1935, Ruth signed a contract with MGM. 
The following year, Luella Parsons said Ruth was coming to Hollywood to play a part in the film Order, Please with Conrad Nagel. I believe the name of the film ended up being called One New York Night, but Ruth wasn't in it. In fact, she wouldn't be in a film until 1940. But she did take time to do a bit of radio work while in Hollywood. She even appeared in a comic strip called The Strange Case of Red Fire. But finally, in 1940, she was offered a part in a film called Abe Lincoln in Illinois. She played Mary Todd Lincoln. The film wasn't for MGM, but RKO. Of the experience of making the film, she said, It's an actor's paradise. They don't let you do a single thing for yourself. Everything, from washing your hair to thinking, it's done for you. Maybe they'll let me act. I'm not sure about that. She followed it up with the Edward G. Robinson film, Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, in which she played the wife of the title character. The film, oddly enough, is about the man who discovered the cure for syphilis. I'm having a grand time working in the movies, like a child with a new toy. After those two films, she returned to the stage for the next two years. Once in a while, she would go back to Hollywood to appear in a film. But she was never what you would call a Hollywood star. After appearing in action in the North Pacific in 1943, she wouldn't be in another film for over 20 years. Around this time, she began running into a man named Garson Keenan, a former Hollywood director. She was 46 and he was 30. The two were attracted to one another, but due to the age difference, Ruth resisted. I was 45. He was 29. What kind of agony lay in store? But soon she gave in and the two were married. Not only was this a marriage that would last for the rest of her life, but the two would also become a very successful writing partnership. This may have been what led Ruth to writing her first play, called Over 21. Apparently the title comes from a doctor who asked Ruth her age. The story was loosely based on her own experiences, being an older actress married to a younger man. The play opened in 1944 and was directed by American playwright, theater director, and producer George S. Kaufman. It was a huge success. It ran for 221 performances on Broadway with Gordon in the starring role. It would be made into a film the following year with Irene Dunn in the starring role. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote in her newspaper column, My Day, The other night a few of us went to see Over 21, a play by Ruth Gordon, in which she acts in the leading role. Miss Gordon is charming in this new comedy with a war background. It is a good play and will give you an evening of laughter. The British gentleman who sat beside me said, I have not laughed so much in weeks. And the headline in the New York Daily News stated, Ruth Gordon writes herself a delicious new comedy, Over 21. And it goes on to say great things about the play. She followed that up with Years Ago in 1946, and then her first screenplay, A Double Life in 1947, in which she wrote with her husband Garson. The pair were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Now George Kerr, the American film director, was looking for a script for his two favorite actors, Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. He turned to his good friends, Ruth and Garson. They wrote a story based on Dorothy and William Dwight Whitney and actor Raymond Macy, who were friends of the couple. The story goes that when Macy and his wife of 10 years were getting a divorce, they turned to the Whitneys, who were both lawyers. Eventually, Macy would be married to Dorothy Whitney, 
and his ex-wife would be married to her ex-husband. The screenplay would be called Adam's Rib. Again, the couple would be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Story in Screenplay, and also were nominated for the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Original Comedy. They would have great success with their next three screenplays, Pat and Mike, The Marine Kind, and The Actress. For the next 20 years or so, she continued to write and act on the stage, yet she was mainly only known to theatergoers. That changed in 1965. After more than 20 years, she found herself back in Hollywood. Natalie Wood was set to star in a film called Inside Daisy Clover. She was friends with Ruth and insisted that Ruth get the part of her mother. The studio wasn't happy about this as they wanted a well-known actress to play the part. But through Wood's insistence, Ruth got the role. She ended up being nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards and won the award at the Golden Globes. She talked, however, of the disappointment of not winning the Oscar. Everyone told me I was going to win, and I fell in the trap of believing them. So there I was at the Academy Awards, giving my hair a last pat, putting on lipstick, and when I looked up, there was Shelley Winters on stage accepting it. In 1966, she appeared in two more films, Bliss Spirit, a TV movie, and Lord Loves a Duck. But it was the film she appeared in when she was 72 years old that really got her started in another career. Roman Polanski cast her in Rosemary's Baby in 1968. Ruth played Minnie Castavet, the next-door neighbor to Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes. Again, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards. And this time, she won. All the other pictures I've made were unsuccessful. Then there was Edge of Darkness and Lord Love a Duck. None of them did for me what Rosemary's Baby had done. Already I've had three offers for roles. I turned them down because they weren't different enough. The best part of the whole thing is the way the young crowd has taken to the role. They come up and compliment me at parties and on the street. I think that's simply great. You can grow old and you can get old. Or you can grow old and stay with it. I much prefer to stay with it. She went from a successful stage actress to writing for the stage and screen, and now at the age where most people are retired, Ruth began another chapter in her life, one that she loved. She followed that up with Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice in 1969, Where's Papa with George Siegel in 1970, and then, I think, her best film, Harold and Maude in 1971. Harold and Maude put Ruth on another level. She was the star of a cult film. One that the younger kids adored. And for the first time in her long career, Ruth Gordon, or Ruthie to her friends, began to get recognized on the street. But according to Ruth, it wasn't her film appearances that made her face famous. It was her many TV shows she appeared in, like Kojak, Rhoda, Emergency, Love Boat, Columbo, Taxi, and many others. And if she hadn't done enough, in the 1970s she became a novelist. She started with a few autobiographies like My Side, Myself Among Others, and Ruth Gordon in Open Book. But then she created works of fiction like Shady Lady, a story about a young Midwestern girl who goes to New York in the 1920s. In her and Garson's apartment in New York, she found herself getting flooded with fan mail. In the mid-1970s, Ruth was invited to speak at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, the school that refused to let her enroll in a second term because they thought she didn't have what it takes to be an actress. She told the graduating class, 
Never take good advice. People don't know a damn thing they're talking about. In September 1976, Ruth was honored in her hometown of Quincy, Massachusetts, where the mayor announced that ground had just been broken on the construction of the Ruth Gordon Center for Performing Arts. I'm the first person in my family to have a theater named for her. I started toward this 88 years, 11 days, five and a half hours ago. I never face the facts. I never listen to good advice. I'm a slow starter, but I'll get there. Ruth Gordon never stopped for the rest of her life. She continued to write, appear on TV shows, and take the occasional film role. On August 28, 1985, she had a full day with walks, errands, and a morning of working on her new screenplay. But that night, she passed away in her sleep at her summer home in Eggertown, Massachusetts. Ruth was 88 years old. In her will, she instructed that there neither be a funeral nor a memorial service and specified that her body be cremated. I'll honor her wishes, her husband said. I always did when she was alive. A little bit before I go. First of all, of course, I need to thank Nancy Fry for playing the parts of both Ruth Gordon and Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, Nancy, if this podcast made any money at all, I would have to pay you for your services, but thank you so much for always helping me out. You know, I think the most amazing part of the story was that Ruth had everything stacked against her, from her parents to the dramatic art school she attended to the press. Everybody said that she shouldn't be on the stage, but she did it just the same and became a huge star. I get the feeling that the more people told her she can't, the more she was determined to do. You know, in the film Harold and Maude, her character says, everyone has the right to make an ass of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. I wonder if that line was improvised because it seems so Ruth Gordon. Oh, and I didn't mention during my story those two Any Which Way movies she made with Clint Eastwood. All I can say about those is I thought she was the only good part of those films, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. You know, this show takes money, and if you want to help out, you can do so by donating a few coins to my Patreon account. You can find a link to that at the Coffee with Jeff website. That's coffeewithjeff.com. And if you can do me a favor, tell your friends about the show. I'd appreciate it. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. And you're encouraged to suggest stories at any of these places. And the links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to it on the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank Nancy Fry for her help again with this episode. To my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. 
And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Beantown. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's full of change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Thank you.